0: This is Mythos, and I am the creator, Nicole Schmidt. This podcast is a storytelling journey through world folklore. Here you will experience fresh interpretations of traditional narratives, mainly with a darker edge. The aim of Mythos is to ignite a passion for the lore of generations past by telling the stories with a sense of magic, as if they were entirely real. With brief context and analysis in the introductions, the main focus ...is the retelling of the stories themselves. Welcome to Folklorica Slavica, the series in which we will explore the folkloric landscape of the Slavic world. Here we will encounter the witches, demons and spirits that haunt the forests, lakes, mountains, urban spaces and even bathhouses of Russia, Poland, Ukraine, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, and
1: more. <speaking in foreign language> Желание попроще, и перекрестившись, взгляну на восток, Окрасится небо багряной зарею, И вечное солнце над миром зайдет.
0: Recently, I visited the DDR Museum in Berlin, an excellent museum that provides an immersive experience of life in former East Germany. From the Berlin Wall to the Stasi, a shorthand term for the communist state secret police, I was struck by the sense that I wasn't just experiencing a different political order, but a different culture as well a culture often structured by state control and censorship. From children's programs to household products, communist society was a world unto itself, with great care taken to keep Western influence at bay. This was not to last, of course, because the Soviet economy in particular specialized in heavy industry early on and not in consumer products, thereby creating a consumer vacuum that later products from the West, particularly America, could fill. While censorship kept Western lifestyle options away from the Soviet populace for a time, from the mid-70s onwards, improvements in travel and communications led to a greater awareness of and desire for modern conveniences. As Natalie Kononenko puts it in the Slavic Folklore Handbook, as the Iron Curtain became rusty and then porous, Western goods began to infiltrate the countries of the former Soviet bloc, and corresponding legends surfaced. Many ascribed sinister qualities to the new, attractive-looking items. The Levi-Jeans craze in the Soviet Union is case in point and perhaps illustrates why there arose urban legends demonstrating a deep distrust of Western culture and Western goods. During the Cold War era, young Soviets were influenced by and wanted to emulate the film and rock stars of the West, and blue jeans were certainly part and parcel of this aesthetic. There was never an official ban on blue jeans, and since there was no Soviet version of the product, a market was created. Soviet young people were willing to pay exorbitant prices for jeans brought by diplomats, tourists, sailors, and military advisors. And there were even stories of young men and women resorting to violence to get them. This trend must have been particularly upsetting for older Soviets, for whom such a passion for consumer products contradicted the values of the Communist Party. And slogans such as prosperity without culture and predatory consumerism were used to combat the effects of the jeans craze, and parents were upbraided for spoiling their children with such corrupting products. It's within this context of change that we can see the function of legends generally as a productive genre, meaning that new tales are created to deal with changes in culture and circumstance. This is certainly true of this episode's stories, Soviet urban legends that arose in direct response to either the collapse of the Soviet Union or its tendency towards control and censorship. As a type of folklore, urban legends is a misnomer, as these tale types aren't strictly urban and are told in rural areas as well. The term actually serves to emphasize the fact that, even though folklore was often associated with rural life and culture, there is also new lore being produced in urban spaces. This episode will look at urban legends told fairly widely in the Soviet Union from the 1960s to the 1990s. This special episode will take a more documentary approach, as opposed to the immersive storytelling approach in other episodes of Mythos. It's a taster of the kind of behind-the-scenes, again, more documentary-style episodes, available only to Patreon supporters or patrons who pledge to support Mythos for 5 or $10 a month. Visit www.patreon.com backslash MythosPodcast or go to my website to get access to further informational episodes with a themed global approach like In Search of Fae Folk, Fairy Lore Around the World, and Urban Legend-focused episodes like Scandinavian Urban Lore. Support if you can. In the meantime, enjoy this taster episode. Part 1. The Vampire Doll and Children's Organs A distrust of those Western goods that were now seeping through the Iron Curtain could be seen in legends that endued these products with evil qualities. And an example of this type of urban legend is the vampire doll. As the story goes, a little girl was given a doll from the West as a gift, and she loved the doll so much she spent every waking hour with it. It was noticed by all that the little girl grew paler And paler every day, but no one knew the cause. Eventually, the girl died, and as the coffin was carried out, her doll was knocked off the bed where the little girl had slept with the doll every night until her untimely death. To the horror of everyone present, when the doll fell, it cracked and blood spilled from the toy's broken body. Whether or not the tellers and hearers of this story or legend explicitly linked the doll's vampirism with Soviet slogans' warning of predatory consumerism, well, that's difficult to know. Nonetheless, the symbolic parallel between the two is certainly very striking. It's interesting to consider the fact that Soviet propaganda, emphasizing the evil of consumerism, was a response to, for example, the jeans craze, which, as we discussed earlier, reportedly led to violence amongst young people. Perhaps, then, the vampire doll symbolizes the predatory consumerism of the West. A similar distrust of the West can be seen in urban legends about Western philanthropy in the Soviet bloc. One legend told of children being adopted by Western couples or given medical treatment by religious organizations for quite sinister purposes. Chosen for their blood type, these adopted children were said to be used as organ donors for wealthy Westerners. One urban legend told of hospitals in Lviv, Ukraine, obtaining babies by sedating mothers during the birthing process, so that they could take the babies and sell them to the West. Even more appalling was the rumor that the hospital officials would then lie to the women, claiming that their infants were so horribly disfigured that it was best they didn't see them. Part 2. The Black Volga Now, one of the most vivid child-stealing urban legends in the Soviet bloc was the Black Volga. The Black Volga was, in fact, the choice car of the Soviet elite and KGB officers. The KGB was the main security agency for the Soviet Union from 1954 until 1991, and it was feared by the populace. The KGB was notorious for being a sinister spy police that countered any form of dissent with imprisonment and torture. With the Volga being the preferred vehicle of such imposing and intimidating political figures, it's no wonder that the Russian people called the cars the Black Ravens. The urban legends surrounding the Black Volga were widespread in Poland, Russia, Belarus, Ukraine, and Mongolia, in the 1960s and 1970s. In these tales, the Volga limousine was allegedly used to kidnap people, children in particular. And the drivers? In actual fact, the luxury Volga was for dignitaries and clergymen. According to legend, the car was variously said to be driven by vampires, Satanists, Jews, and even Satan himself. The culprits seemed to be a demonization of the dread KGB, the enviable Soviet elite who had special access to goods and services, and to a distrusted minority group. These distrusted and demonized members of communist society also had a sinister purpose in mind for those kidnapped children. They were allegedly transported to Western Germany, and sold for a huge sum to use their blood and marrow in a medicine for leukemia. Of course, the buyers were rich Westerners, and in some versions of the legend, wealthy Arabs. In some stories, the motive for the Black Volga kidnappings is simply to harvest organs for a huge profit, which mirrors another famous legend about kidney theft perpetrated by the KGB. There does indeed seem to be a correlation between urban legends and those people, ideas, or institutions demonized by Soviet propaganda, or at least uh, a similarity in the themes. Now, could there be a link between the values emphasized by propaganda and certain aspects of these urban legends? For example, in the urban legends surrounding the kidnapping and the Black Volga, both religious organizations and Jews are demonized, which bears resemblance to the spate of Soviet anti-religion propaganda of the 1920s and 30s. Admittedly, there is a gap of some decades between the anti-religion propaganda and these legends. However, it's also possible that the sheer virulence of the messaging had lasting effect on the general public's views, and of course anti-Semitic sentiments had even existed under the czars. In particular, the anti religion propaganda was published in a magazine put out by the League of Militant Atheists. A daily edition, The Godless at the Workplace, was published from 1923 to 1931. The images were dramatic, violent, and often demeaning. From caricatures of Jews and Arabs to an image of a Soviet soldier running Orthodox priests and Jews over with a tank. The propaganda sent the strongest possible anti-religion message. To what extent this was representative of the sentiments of the Russian people is really beyond the scope of this episode. And of course, the USSR's official stance on anti-Semitism was that they were against it. Uh, Nonetheless, synagogues um, and religious practice, particularly the Jewish people, was suppressed. However, Despite all of this, it is interesting to see similar anti-religion themes in Soviet propaganda and these sort of demonizing urban legends. Part 3. Nuclear Freaks In 1986, in the Ukrainian city of Pripyat, then part of the USSR, there was an explosion at their Chernobyl nuclear power plant caused by a flawed reactor design. As a result, both the plant and the surrounding area were inundated with dangerous amounts of radiation, a level 7 on the International Nuclear Events Scale, and a level 7 is the top of the scale. Author Eugenia Kuznetsova recounts an unusual childhood spent in Venetia Ukraine, which was about 300 kilometers away from the town where the Chernobyl disaster occurred. The USSR still existed during the first five years of the disaster, and because the regime controlled and suppressed the press, public information was sparse. As Kuznetsova puts it, as a result of the silencing And as a compensation for the knowledge gap, the public anxiety surfaced in urban legends. Then, in the early 1990s, during the dissolution of the Soviet Union, the tabloid press appeared and appealed to the public need for sensationalism, which had long been suppressed by the communist state. Both tabloids and urban legends spread tales of Chernobyl's awful deforming effects, Kutsanova also remembers that during her school years in the mid-1990s, it was still, quote, excuse me, still popular among teenagers to tell each other thrilling tales about Chernobyl's nuclear mutants, end quote. Rather suspect pictures of deformed infants were common. Moreover, there were also public exhibitions in the 1990s of the effects of Chernobyl's deadly radiation, Exhibitions mostly consisting of fetuses and babies who had died, their deformed bodies preserved and floating in formalin. There was also a brief peek in urban legends about these so-called four-eyed immortals. And in tabloids, there was even the quintessential blurry photographic evidence. Interestingly, Kuznetsova states that Since this period was so brief, very little documentary evidence exists of this urban legend, though it is part of the cultural memory. If any listeners have any more information on the Four-Eyed Immortal urban legend, contact me via the website, www.mythospodcast.com. I did try Googling, um, did try to do a bit of offhand research on the Four-Eyed Immortal urban legend, um, but came up short. If you'd like future access to episodes like this, consider becoming a patron. You can visit my website and click on the Become a Patron button. And feel free to like the Facebook page or to follow Mythos on Twitter at podcast underscore Mythos. I love hearing from you, whether that's info and research you'd like to contribute, or even just a bit of encouragement. Lastly, the resources for this episode can be found on the Mythos website.
1: За тихой рекой в березовом роще распустится первый весенний цветок, и я загадаю желание попроще. И перекрестившись, взгляну на восток, окрасится небо багряной зарею, и вечное солнце над миром зайдет, зайдет и белая птица. Злетит над землею И Божье прощение С небес принесет и белая птица
0: взлетит
1: над землею И Божье прощение С небес принесет! И что-то большое откроется сердцу, такое, что жить, ой, жизнью моей не обнять, и станет спокойно, и сладко, как в детстве, когда обнимала. И станет спокойно и сладко, как в детстве, когда обнимала меня моя мать. Молитва Молитва святая слезами прольется Христовой любовью. Исполнится грусть, и в этом мгновенье душа прикоснется к великой вселенной.